Turn to Luke 23. We'll be looking at a passage that spans the very end of Luke 23 and beginning of chapter 24. It's no hyperbole, it's no exaggeration to say that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. If Jesus wasn't raised, and he was just another good moral teacher, perhaps slightly deluded by his own grandeur, but if the grave could not hold him, as we were just singing, then everything he said is true. And nothing could be more important than believing his words. So Paul is right in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says of the death and resurrection of Christ, that it is of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, as of the most important thing that you could possibly hear, possibly know, that Christ died for our sins. If you came to our Good Friday service on Friday night, you, you, you would have seen that we leaned into that truth hard and we considered the cost of our sin. So that's of first importance, but not just that, that he died for us, but he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. He lumps this in with what he says is of first importance, not only that he died, but that he rose. Scripture predicted his death and resurrection. Scripture describes his death and resurrection. And this morning we will look at one of those descriptive passages that goes through what happened. The reality of his death, affirming the reality of his death and the reality of his resurrection. But I, won't, I don't want to just stop at the facts. I want to consider why it matters. The big so what question. So, so what if this is true? What difference does it make in my life? Many teenagers have wondered as they're going through Algebra 2, like, why do I need to know this? Right? Maybe you're there now, maybe you have been. You think, when will the quadratic equation come in handy later in my life? As an adult, you're probably thinking it never has. Uh, right? Except for a few fields in here, of course. Um, likewise, many wonder with the resurrection of Jesus, why do I... Why do I need to know about this? What, what difference does it make? Why is it important? So what we'll do this morning is we'll look at a passage that describes the fact of his death, the fact of his resurrection, but then we'll take a good chunk of time to consider why it matters. Let's read this now. Luke 23, we'll be picking up in verse 50. This comes on the tail end of verses 26 to 49 that describes in detail his death, the crucifixion, the darkness, even the very literal darkness as the sky was obscured as Jesus perished and he cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And then we get to this. A man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was a preparation day. 
The Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. These events described there in verses 50 to 56 at the end of chapter 23 are, are meant to affirm this fact that he really died. These intervening verses uh, between his death on the cross and his resurrection support the reality of his death while giving brief, beautiful attention to the costly devotion of a few. First describes this man, Joseph of Arimathea, described in all four gospel accounts. And what we learn about him is uh, he was rich. Matthew describes that. He was influential. He was on the council, described here just as the council. This was, was known as the Sanhedrin. It was the ruling body of the Jewish people under the Roman government. And this was the body that had condemned Jesus to death. It says here in verse 51, he had not consented to that plan. He's a man that we learn was a secret disciple of Jesus. Luke, uh, John's account describes that. John 19, 38 to 40. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Maybe he was afraid of being ostracized from the community. Maybe he was afraid that his business would be cut off. Maybe he was afraid his family would reject him. Whatever it was, he was afraid to publicly show himself as a follower of Jesus. But that changed. He asked that Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. And Mark's account says that Pilate went to the centurion and said, basically, can you confirm that Jesus is really dead? And the centurion confirmed that, and then he consented to let, let um, Joseph take the body. Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Detail upon detail here to show the reality of his death, wrapped in 100 pounds of sticky spices, confirmed by a centurion that he was really dead. But I want to consider Joseph here for a moment been a secret disciple, but secret no more. 
He willingly stood up, made known his position as he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Everyone would know where he stood now. This isn't the main point of the passage, but it's worth giving a brief side note that there may be a defining moment for you where you can no longer remain a quiet, hidden disciple of Jesus. You may need to stand against a particular unjust practice at work. You may need to refuse to support a particular ideology. You may have to have a hard gospel conversation with somebody you care about, knowing that they may reject you. It may be costly. These small stories of faithfulness, well, not, not the main point of the passage, can be encouragements for us if we, if we face that. But the passage is simply showing the reality of his death. It, it moves to several women here. They watched and they prepared spices to take after the day of Sabbath day of rest. And, and I want you to notice that some of the details in here are, are meant to probably counter common questions somebody might have. Somebody might say, well, maybe, maybe they just went to the wrong tomb. Look at, verse, look at verse 55. The women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Joseph is there and named in all four accounts. These women are named in passage to come and they went and they, they saw the tomb. They saw his body get laid in it. They saw where he was at. They didn't later go to the wrong tomb. Somebody might wonder, was he maybe just unconscious? Maybe he didn't really die? Well, they wrapped him in a hundred pounds of sticky spices. A centurion whose job it was to kill people affirmed that he was dead. They put him in this tomb. The evidence doesn't support that. Similar to persistent arguments, though, that Elvis Presley didn't really die. There was... Arguments that would come up that maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe, maybe you remember this. I certainly do growing up in the 80s and 90s that there would be uh, article after article that, Je that Elvis had been spotted. You guys remember that? You'd be in the grocery store and there'd be a tabloid article, typically the very classy Weekly World News, all in black and white, that would say, new Elvis sighting, you know, pumping gas in Milwaukee. You know, and... and he had died in 1977, so this is not too long after that, in the 80s and 90s, and these stories kept popping up. And so not too much longer after that, the American Funeral Director magazine, the, the premier magazine for funeral home directors, so your subscription probably lapsed of this magazine, uh, they did an article on this called Elvis Has Really Left the Building. And giving the details to support that he really died. And so uh, this is what they said. He was pronounced dead by several physicians. He was autopsied and the cause of his death was determined. He was prepared for burial by two morticians. He was dressed by his wardrobe manager. His makeup was done by his personal makeup artist. His hair was colored jet black. And then he was viewed by his entire family. Saying he really died. And in a sense, that's what Luke is doing here. And the other gospel writers, as they give details, they're saying he really died. He really died. Sabbath began at sundown on Friday night. So the women went home, they rested, preparing to come back on the first day of the week. What must that 
Saturday had been like. After the chaos and fear, tragedy of Friday, before the empty tomb of Sunday, a, a day that they ought to have known was coming but didn't know was coming, what would that Saturday have been like, that dark day? It skips over it. It doesn't tell us. But it picks up with the fact of his resurrection. The fact of his resurrection. Sunday, early dawn, they came to the tomb carved in stone. Uh, Mark's account says that on the way, they're discussing with one another, hey, how are we going to move the stone? How how are we going to get into him? They they were considering this problem, but it was a problem they didn't have to solve. Because they got there and the stone was already rolled away. They went in, they didn't find the body. We see from some details later on here in other passages, they found uh, the cloth that had been laid around him. They found it rolled up and set to the side, but they didn't find him. What they do find is this angel. Verse 5, as the women were terrified and bowed their face to the ground, the men, these angels, said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Isn't that a classic line? Why are you at the cemetery? He's alive. And then they say, he is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Jesus had told them over and over and over, this must happen. But they didn't have ears to hear it. Luke chapter 9 gives one account of that, but there's many. 9, 43 to 45. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is after some miracles he had done. But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Okay, before we get to what he says, that should tell us this is important, right? It's like the parent who's told their child over and over again, you've got to do your homework, you've got to do your homework. Let these words sink into your ears. You've got to, right, right? You can hear the urgency in this. Let these words seek into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them, so they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Again and again, he told them, but they didn't listen. In fact, sometimes they pushed back against it. And so the angel says to him, here, Son of Man must be delivered. He told you this. This must happen. But why must this happen? The the word there, it might even be translated, it was necessary. Why was this necessary? There's a few ways we could answer that, but but here's how I'm going to answer it. Whether you're Christian or not, whether maybe this is your first time here and somebody's invited you, but you're not like religious I would imagine that you recognize that there is something wrong with this world. You see things on the news that bother you. And the things that bother you may or may not be the same as everybody else, but there's things that bother you. Wicked acts of injustice. Maybe a new conflict somewhere in the globe that that people are being slaughtered. More recently, it seems like it's in Myanmar, but, but there's always some place where there's an unjust death happening. The actors change, but the script seems the same. And you, you know that, and that probably bothers you. You've been hurt by someone close to you. 
they, they do or say something mean or insensitive or rude or even worse. You get sick, maybe really sick, maybe even something you're born with. Someone you love dies. Maybe it's a person you're close to, maybe even a beloved pet, and you just feel the wrongness of death. But even closer to home, if you're honest, you struggle inside with what I do, and everybody does. A desire on one hand to do what's right, but consistent difficulty in doing that. Whether it's an attitude of selfishness that you want to put aside, but you keep struggling with it, a persistent anger, bitterness, gossip, slander, some other combination of that. I bet you recognize, if you're honest with yourself, that it's hard to do what's right. Which tells you that there's a moral code, but you're struggling to meet it. And God is going to fix all of this. He wants to fix all of this, but it requires his personal action. Jesus must come. He must live a perfect life, the life that I'm not living, that you're not living, but he completely did, obeying God in every facet of his life. And then he would die as a substitute for us. But he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise again. And Jesus says this must happen. This is not God's first plan, but there's other options. This is the only plan. There's no other way. So the angel says this must happen. Jesus had said, this must happen. So they remembered his words. Look at verse 9. They returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven. That may not stand out to you, but if you look at the Gospels up until this point, it's always been the twelve. The twelve. The twelve were called. The twelve were sent out. The twelve were named. But it's no longer twelve, it's eleven. Because one had abandoned them, had abandoned Christ, had turned away from Christ. But they do go back and tell the eleven. And yet, the men did not believe the women. Verse 10, name some of them that were there. Verse 11 says, these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. They didn't believe them. Peter at least got up and went to check it out himself. So as he ran to the tomb, he stooped and he looked in. And all he saw were these wrappings that had been around his body. And he went away marveling, not necessarily believing, but marveling. I think the belief would come later. That very night, in John's account, John chapter 20, 19 to 21, Jesus appears to Peter and the others. So, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that very same day, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, they were still fearful, still fearful. They were going to be lumped in with what was seen as a rebellion Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And Peter believed. He saw the resurrected Christ. No longer marveling at merely an empty tomb, he saw the one who had been in the tomb. Before we get to the so what question, I want you to just consider that these facts, the reality of his death and the reality of his resurrection can be anchors for your soul. That even if you feel tossed around by so many other things that you don't understand, so many other things you don't understand about life, 
about your life, about the future, even about God's word and biblical truth. And there's some things you're wrestling with. If we can cling to these truths of he really died and he really rose, we can be anchors. So we say, God, I don't understand why you're doing this, but I know Jesus really died and he really rose. So I can trust you. Well, with those facts in mind, though, I want to consider three ways in which this matters. We could look at a lot more than three. I'm going to give you three. First is this. Death, the last enemy, will be destroyed. All of 1 Corinthians 15 really is about this, the significance of the resurrection. Uh, but for the sake of time, we're just going to pull out a few verses. I encourage you, though, go back and read more. And it describes how this enemy that we all face of death will be destroyed. And he links that directly to the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Uh, asleep is a way of talking about death here. And it says Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first resurrected one. But because he rose, so those who trust in him will rise. That's what it goes on to say. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. It's still an enemy. We still face it, but it will be abolished. Verses 54 to 55, jumping ahead about 30 verses, it says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this body that is perishing, and my guess is, depending on which decade of life you're in, you probably feel that perishing more and more, Right? Just this week, uh, playing basketball in our driveway, and I stepped a little wrong, and I rolled my ankle and fell into a thorn bush. And I was thinking, this would not have happened when I was 20. Uh, but body just doesn't quite move the same way, right? Doesn't quite heal as fast. And I know that's only going to accelerate. This body is perishing, but we will put on one that is imperishable. I'm talking about our resurrected bodies. This mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Feel the sting of death still. Every person feels it. Standing at a graveside of someone you love and the dirt is still fresh. It brings a, a soberness to life. We see the enemy that is death and we can't minimize it or trivialize it. And the Bible doesn't. But what it does say is that Jesus conquered death. And because he conquered death, trust in him, we no longer need to fear death. It's not the end. Because he rose, we will rise. It's a powerful visual representation of this that I saw recently. In 1751, there was a young woman named Maria who on Easter morning, she died while giving, childbirth, uh, while, while giving birth to her child. It was her very first child. She was 28 years old. And in the process of giving birth, which was so common at the time, she and this child perished. There were believers in Christ. Her husband, although grieving, he had commissioned a special tomb that her body would be placed in, her and this child. It's remarkable. It's massive. It's probably four feet wide, maybe eight feet long. It's carved from a single block of stone. And it's meant to picture this hope that her death is not the end. This is the whole thing. I'll zoom in here in a few moments. It shows this tomb cracking open and her coming out along with the child. 
As you zoom in, you can see incredible detail of how she's pushing this aside. Likewise, the child coming out of this grave. Now, it's not that we believe that in the resurrection people are literally going to shove aside their tombstones and come out, but it pictures symbolically what is very true. For those who've trusted in Christ, death is not the end. That, that because he rose, we will rise. The inscription of this is in German, but the translation maybe loses some of the rhythm, but it's, it's powerful. It says, listen, the trumpet calls. It resounds through the grave. Wake up, my child of sorrows. Take off your cover. Hurry to your Savior. Before him, death and time flees, and all suffering disappears in eternal salvation. Lord, here I am, and the child you gave me. Why does resurrection matter? Because for those who trust in Christ, death is not the end. And that leads very much into our second point. We can have eternal life because Jesus is the life. Because Jesus really did die and really did rise, we can have eternal life with him. In John chapter 11, Jesus is speaking to a woman whose brother has just died. And what he says to her is this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He doesn't just state this fact. He turns to her and he says, Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I do. The necessary response to the death and resurrection of Jesus is belief. You wonder, what, what do we do with this truth? These are the facts. What do we do with it? The Bible says the reaction is to believe. The, the concrete grounds of our forgiveness, what the Bible describes as our justification, it is not like your faith. Your faith is not what saves you in one sense. It's Jesus. But your faith is placed in Jesus. One author describes it this way. He, he says, faith is not the ground of our righteousness, it is the instrumental cause. It is not the drink, it is the straw. The drink, forgiveness in Christ. The straw, how we access it, is our faith. Trusting in him, believing in him. But, but what does that mean? I'm going to describe faith the way it's been described for centuries here with three terms. It's often described in Latin. I'll give you the English here with it. What does it mean to say we must Believe it involves knowledge, notitia in the Latin, assent, and trust. Knowledge meaning we can't believe in that which we don't know about. There's necessary knowledge, just the facts, the details of who Jesus is and what he did and that he died for us. There's a knowledge component, but knowledge is not enough. You can know something, but still not believe it. There needs to be an assent saying, yes, I, I think this is true. Not, not just, yes, this is what Christians believe, but, but I think this is true. Even that, though, is still not quite getting at what saving faith is. That's where this fiducia or trust comes in. It's a personal trust and reliance. R.C. Sproul says it this way, faith is only effectual if knowing about and assenting to the claims of Christ, one personally trusts in him alone for salvation. Let me give you an illustration of this. 
recently listening to a, kind of a lengthy podcast about the Titanic, which if you guys want to know how I spend my time, it's stuff like that, right? Um, and, and in this, this podcast, it was describing some things that I had uh, maybe perhaps learned but forgotten about how it went down more than 100 years ago, how the Titanic sank, and this ship that was believed to be unsinkable, of course, it, it hit an iceberg, but it didn't collide with it head on. They actually think it probably could have made it if it did that. They tried to turn it, and so it just had a glancing blow. And it was so slight that many of the people on the boat didn't even feel it. Um, And and so when the captain became convinced that they were going to go down, he had a hard time convincing some of the other people on the boat that it happened. Because, first of all, some of them didn't even know that they were in trouble. They didn't feel it. They didn't see it. So over the course of a couple hours, they became maybe convinced. But initially, they didn't even have the knowledge that they were in danger. But even after that knowledge was being shared, many people refused to believe it. They didn't assent to it. They said, this ship is unsinkable. And it seems like it's fine right now, right? If you're on board, you're, you're not seeing the water coming in. It seems pretty solid. They, even as they were hearing about it, they weren't agreeing with that assessment, But even after it became obvious that the ship really was going down, they really had hit an iceberg, and they began to see, okay, this is really a dangerous situation, many of them refused to get into the boats. They said, it feels safer here on the big boat. And they saw these little life rafts out there, and they thought, I I don't know if I can trust in that. So, So many refused to get into the boat. In the same way, you can know the facts of what Christians say about this day. You can even perhaps agree, like, yeah, I think that's probably true, but are you trusting in Jesus? Have you said, I see that my sin is responsible. I see that I would need to pay for my sin, and I'm going to place my hope solely in Jesus to forgive me. I'm going to turn from the sin that separated me from God. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going I'm to get in the lifeboat that is Christ. Jesus says to the one who believes in him, he will live and not die. And I'm going to give you one more, one more reason why the resurrection matters. We have hope in hard times. And this is the point that I think Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. He describes the scenario they're in. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. He says, we were in great affliction. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. So this is so bad, honestly, we despaired even of life. We just felt like we just wished we could die. Maybe you've been there. Where life seems so hard and you just think, I just don't know if I can press on. It says they despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So this was so great, it caused us not to trust in ourselves, but in God. And notice what he says about God. It's God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. Friends, if you've trusted in Christ with that fully orbed belief that we just described, not only is your future secure, but your present, you can have hope, even if life is really hard. And it's not just because of your own merit or something, but if God can raise the dead, and he has in Jesus, then you can trust him for whatever obstacle you're going through today. 
And that's not like this prosperity message where it's all going to work out fine in the short term. We have no promise of that. We have a promise of the long term. But what it is saying is that he is trustworthy now because he raised Jesus from the dead. Let's pray.